What a song. Now that's a commandment of God. We know in the Word of God in the, in the New Testament that the Great Commission is mentioned in Matthew chapter 28. But it's also mentioned on five occasions. It's mentioned in Matthew 28, Mark chapter 16, Luke chapter 24, John chapter 21, and Acts chapter 1. It's mentioned on five occasions did God tell us to go. And so we must go. One, one statement was, I must go. I, must, I do not have to come back. And so such is the case. We must be obedient to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now the question is, is have you given your life to God so that if he were to say go, that you would go? That's the question that must be asked and has to be asked of every one of us today. And we have to be able to ask, answer that question, yes, I'm willing and ready to go. Ready to go to tell others about Christ. Ready to tell others about Jesus Christ, how he died on the cross, how he died for all of mankind. And so are you willing and ready to go as God would have you to? Now, I want to ask a question this evening, and the question will be, first off, why should we go? And then when we go, what are we going to do once we get there? That's a good question. Thirdly, uh, how do we do what God wants us to do? That's a question that has to be asked, asked and answered. And then I guess I need to deal with something else just briefly before I preach here. First off, we do know we use the King James Bible, don't we? Everybody understand that this evening? Okay, let me tell you why one of some of the reasons why we use the King James Bible. Some of the reasons why we read and use the King James Bible. First off, it's because of the text it was translated from. Now, that's a pretty important issue. The text that it was translated from, because in Romans chapter 3, God tells us that he committed the oracles of himself unto the Jews. Therefore, the Old Testament, being Hebrew in its, uh, by and large in its language that it was translated from, it is a must. So somebody says, well, you know, some of these other additions, and then they'll say some of these other revisions, and then they'll say some of these other translations. And they use those three words interchangeably as if those three words are all one and the same, and they're not. They aren't one and the same. First off, an addition. You may have a King James Bible that could have another cover on it. Now that would be a new edition. Same words, just a different makeup. You got, I mean, it's got the, got the cover on it. You may have a King James Bible that's got some notes on it and say, you, uh, whatever notes there may be. And then there may be another one that they made updates on those notes, but without changing the King James Bible, that would be called editions. That would not be called new translation. That's not a new translation, nor would it be called a revision. Secondly, a revision on the King James Bible deals with the revision not being applicable to the translation, but only when a new word is chosen to convey the exact same original meaning. Now, that would be something that would be a revision that would take place, maybe a changing of a spelling of a word, but the word's the same, S-H-E-W show, S-H-O-W show. That would be a revision that did not change any intent or any meaning that the, uh, that, that was there, but it would be nonetheless somewhat of a change. And then, of course, a translation is something that is just completely different altogether. Now, the statement is, from King James to New International Version to American Standard Version to so many other called versions, those are different translations, and being different translations, they are not the same. And if they're not the same, then they're different. And if they're different, then which one's right? 
Because two things that are different cannot be the same, and two things that are different cannot both be right, both at the same time, and a decision must be made. Which is right and which is wrong? Therefore, the decision being which is right and which is wrong, it must be made that as, as I have studied it and tried my best, came out of a church that used to have all kinds of versions, uh, so-called versions of the Bible. And I had to make a decision, and as I began to study and try to figure it out, I came to the conclusion, looking at how they diminished some doctrines and encouraged some other kind of doctrines, and I came to the conclusion that if only one can be right, and only one can then it certainly must be the King James Bible. You do understand that there has been no revival in the English-speaking world without the King James Bible at the thick of it since it came into its, its translation. Uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, translation. Alrighty. Now, I've made the statement that we must go. There are five commandments of going. Look in Matthew chapter 28, if you would with me, please. And let's look at the first going. And then uh, I'll show us after we look there. We're going to work our way to the book of, of uh, Romans is what we will do. Matthew chapter 28, and we look into verse 19 and 20. The scripture says it this way. He says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel... Excuse me, I've got Mark sixteen fifteen in my mind. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Look at Mark sixteen fifteen. Mark sixteen fifteen said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So God says it in Mark 16, 15. I'm keeping you moving, but go on to Luke, Luke 24, verse 44. Luke chapter 24, and I'm going down to verse 44. The scripture says in verse 44, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Verse 45, Luke 24, 45. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem and ye are witnesses of these things and behold I send the promise of my father unto you but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem till ye be endued with power from on high. Go over to chapter John, uh, John chapter 20 and look at verse 21. John chapter 20, and I'm looking at verse 21. The scripture says, Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. So here he's telling us to go. And then go to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and we see the last of the five commissions of the... Uh, of the great commission and it says in Acts chapter 1 8 but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth let's go to the Lord in prayer this evening Father we come to you in Jesus precious name and Lord, you've commissioned all the children of yourself to go and tell others about Jesus Christ. And with that kind of a commissioning, God, 
for us to do anything but tell others is, Father, disobedience. You said, Father, in Ephesians chapter 6, part of, Father, the armor of you was to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. May we be ever ready, God, to go where you'd have us to go and to speak what you'd have us to speak. God, I plead with you this week that you would speak into the hearts, Father, of all here. And may all of us seek your calling, Father. And may we not be content until we found the high, the prize of the high calling of you for our lives. God, if there be some here this week that do not know if they're on their way to heaven, but oh, precious Lord, that they've got serious questions in their minds. They aren't sure whether they're going to heaven or maybe they're sure they're not going to heaven. Oh, how I plead that your Holy Spirit would would reap conviction upon them this week. And that, Father, hearts would begin to tenderize. And that, Father, that they would would come to a point that they've just got to have Christ. They've just got to have Him. And, Lord, I ask for the saints, those that are saved tonight, that, God, if for whatever reason they've grown distant from you, though they be saved, or God, maybe they've not grown distant. Uh, uh, maybe they've just not quite been pressing toward the mark, that high calling, as they once were. God, I plead with you that this week you'd use it in a mighty fashion. Yes, may we have fun. Yes, God, we ask that you'd put your blessing upon the food and all the games. But preeminently, God, how we ask that you'd put your blessing upon souls being righted and souls being placed in your hands. And God, how we rejoice off of all that transpired last year. But may you do it this year. And I'm convinced Satan would do nothing more than to try and to hinder. He would try to get minds off of of everything that would be of you. And he'd try to get our minds on other things. He'd try to get friends at odds with one another. He'd try to get all kinds of things going on. And how I plead with you, God, that you'd just bind Satan and take him off the property, please, by your grace and honor. God, I plead with you that you'd just go ahead and put a hedge high like you did with Job and put it high about the property here and may he not have any free roam on this property. And God, I plead with you that the, that the, 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 the ground would be right, Father, for, for the movements of your Holy Spirit and the hearts would be pliable and usable and hungering, God, to be right with you. Now, Lord, in Jesus' name, if you leave this, this eve, the rest of this evening up to myself, God, we're in a world of trouble. But, oh God, how we plead with you. Oh Lord, how we plead with you that you would rear up a next generation to the glory and honor of yourself. A generation in this group right here that would determine that if everybody goes or if nobody goes with them, They're going to press on for the cause of Christ. God, please, may we as the adults that are in this room be an example and a witness before our youth of living for you. May it not be a fakeism, but, oh God, may all of us live for you from our hearts and may we hunger for righteousness. May we hunger for yourself. God, how I plead with you Thank you for the fun, but oh God, may there be a greater joy than mere games. May there be the ultimate joy of living for Christ with an entire life being achieved this week. 
Now speak to us. We need you desperately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We see, and I'll make reference, there's five different issues that I've looked at these verses. Five times that was made reference to ongoing. I would make reference that if you went back to Matthew chapter, uh, don't go back, I'm just going to tell you about it, that if you were to have gone back to Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20, you would find in verse 18 that God said, all power is given unto you. Then we find as well, he says in Luke Luke chapter 24, he said, tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye shall be endued with power. Then he says in this one here, he says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, that ye shall receive power. Three out of the five times that God told us to go, he attached the power of himself to the going. One day I got to sitting and asking myself, if the power of God were to fall on the average believer, what would they do with it? Well, the average church, I'm convinced, would not know what to do with the power of God to such a point that they would try to build fancified buildings with it. Now, cut the yawning. We're just now getting going. This guy looked as I scanned the room that time. Three yawns went on as I went like that. Now, stand up a second with me. Stand up. We're going to get sleepy before we even get going. I didn't mean to single you out, brother. I was afraid I was about to fall in. No, I'm joking. But anyway... Matter of fact, it was your, I, I think you were yawning at the same time he was. Man, there's something in this. Anyway, let's press on. The power of God is a necessary thing. Somebody says, oh, I'm going to go tell people about Christ. See, there's two, there's two things that people can do if they do not have the power of God. Some try to go witnessing anyway without the power of God. Now, there could be danger in that. And then others say, well, because I don't have the power of God, I'm not going to go witnessing. See, there's two possible things, both of which are dangerous and wrong. God said we have the power, and then he said to go. Now, what should we do with the power of God if it were to fall? God's called, I heard some say, God's called you to be a missionary. God's called you some to preach. God's called others to other different avenues. But if you go there without the power of God, I'm trying to tell us something this evening. It is useless in your efforts. You may spend a lifetime out there without the power of God and you may get something accomplished, but I'll guarantee you it will not be all that God intended. Now, as I look at this, I notice that he said in Luke 24, he said that ye, he said, tarry till the power comes. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he said, ye shall receive power. Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, the power fell. And when the power fell, what did they spend the rest of chapter 2 doing? They spent the rest of chapter 2 witnessing. Now, the goal that I'm after this evening is, is that God would stir in people, in the youth's heart and in the adult's hearts as well, that we would be witnessing for the cause of Christ, but if we sense that the power of God is lacking in our lives, that we'd find an old-fashioned altar and we'd start praying for God's power to come upon us like it once was in times of old years ago. Now, one of the things that's missing, and somebody says, what's wrong with America? And, some, and everybody has their own things. But I'm telling you one thing I know for sure it's missing in America, and it's the power of God upon the believers. Now, I can't ask for the power of God to be upon a lost person here in Colleen, but I certainly can ask for God's people to seek God and to beseech God for the power of Himself to fall upon us. We can't expect them to come to church, but we need God's power in going after them. Thank you, and you may be seated. Now, in Acts chapter 2, they begin to preach. And then the tragedy of it all is, is that in Acts chapter 3, a problem hit. 
The problem was was that they started looking for miracles. They started hungering for money. And then in Acts chapter 4, the problem was, or what God did with the problem was, He took that power that He had on that church in Jerusalem, put it over here on the church of Antioch. Now, if there's any power of God in this place, we want to keep it. If He if He'd let it, if He'd be His will. And then if He will keep it on us, then we want to use it. See, if we're not going to use the power of God as God wants it to use, He will take the X amount of power and He'll put it where it is usable. We need God's power. Now, what are we to tell people when we go to them? Well, we're to tell them about Jesus Christ and we're to tell them about His saving power. Some don't like the sounds of repentance, but it's still in the Bible. See, if we took Christ and we said, okay, Christ healed a man of his lame disease. Well, what happened with that man of his lame disease? That man was now walking. He wasn't lame anymore. If we said God healed a blind man, what do we think happened to the blind man? He lost his his blindness and now he can see. If we say, okay, Christ healed a dead man, what do we think about him healing a dead man? Well, we we see, see that Christ took a dead man and brought him to life again. Well, then what does it mean if Christ heals a sinner that's lost and on his way to hell? That means he took a man that's dead in trespasses and sin, breathed life into his nostrils and gave him eternal life and caused him to live for him. There's a change involved there. He, God doesn't just touch something and just leave it as it is. He works on it and he's changing that very life. That's his goal and he changes it. Now go over to Romans chapter 1. Now last year I preached out of verse 1, Romans chapter 1 and out of verse 1. And if you'll remember, I stated that there were three things in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1 that Paul calls himself. You remember last year he called himself first off, he said he was was a servant. And then after he said he was a servant in Romans 1, 1, Paul says that he is an apostle. And he's called to be an apostle. And then thirdly, he said he's separated into the gospel of God. Now you'll remember those three things. The first thing the apostle Paul said was that he was, he was a servant. The second thing he said was that he was called. And the third thing that he said was, was that he was separated. Now, I, I, I hastened, and if you'll remember last year, I preached it in this group right here last year. I preached that there is a difference between being separated from something and being separated unto something. Do you remember me preaching that? See how it's worded in, in the verse 1? He is separated unto the gospel of God. And you'll remember last year that I made the statement that if all a person has is that they are separated from something, Maybe the guys are wearing their hair right. Maybe the girls are wearing their clothing right. Maybe we're carrying our King James Bibles. And you'll remember I preached on several things of that nature. How to be separated from something is an extremely dangerous thing if that's all that you have. We need far more than to be separated from something. We need people to be separated unto God. If all we've gotten, say amen with me. I want the youth to just say amen. Go ahead, right there. Say amen. We need something more than to be separated from. We need to be separated unto God. Oh, oh, come on. Now, you sound like you're yawning. And then, then what we've got is this. If all we've got is a group that's separated from something, such as the, the Pharisees were separated. If I mean, if all they are is separated from something, the Pharisees were separated. They surely were. They were separated under study. And being separated under study, there came a day that it was the Pharisees and the scribes, and they were the ones at the back of the crowd hollering, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Remember that? 
Remember how they were the ones at the back of the crowd saying, crucify Christ, crucify Christ. Were they separated? They were a separated bunch. But they were crucifying that which was holy. And if all you have in your life is I've got my hair cut right, or I'm wearing my hair long, or I'm wearing my, my dresses long, or I'm, you heard the Snodderly definition of modest, haven't you? Let me give it to you while I'm here. It's not early definition of modesty. Get, girls, get your dresses so long that you can't call them short. Get them so high, nobody can say they're low. Get them so full, nobody can say they're too tight. And get them so non see throughable, nobody can see through them. And then you should be pretty close to modest. Yeah, but that's why. But if that's all you've got is you're separated from the, un, from the worldly attire. And if that's all you've got, I'm telling you that it could be you growing up and one day crucifying that which is holy, standing in a church because you're separated from something. We've got churches filled with that kind of stuff right now. And I'm telling you, it is a terrible sight. People know how to look right. They know how to dress right. They know how to talk right. But they go on to give their preachers trouble and the preacher tries to preach against sin, and the preacher tries to preach again uh, toward righteousness, and those that are separated from but not separated unto God, they rear up when he gets on their sin, and they get angry at him. And they get upset with a preacher, and they don't like it when he starts preaching on their sin. Now the proper attitude toward preachers preaching on your sin, if you're going to be godly, you may not like it but you surely would be thanking God that he was concerned about you enough to preach on your sin to help you get back close to God. Alrighty, so separation from. See, step number one in being truly godly separated is to get separated unto God. That's step number one. Remember the illustration I gave last year. The illustration I gave was if I were to say that's Tennessee, and if I were to say that wall's Texas, that when time came for us to come to Texas from Tennessee, I did not put stand and stare at Tennessee and draw the vehicle down into reverse and start backing upward. Who knows where we would end up if all I was trying to do was to get separated from something. Who knows where in the world we would go. Who knows what we would run into because we're not looking where we're going. We're looking at what we're leaving. But the goal in separation is to look where you're going. And when it came time to come to Texas, I set my sights on Texas. I pulled her down into drive and I started out toward Texas. But the closer I got to Texas, the farther I got from Tennessee. And the point that I'm trying to get us to understand on this is, is that the closer a person can get in separating themselves unto God, the farther they'll get from the world. Let God separate you. I'm not, I'm not shooting separation. I'm simply trying to get us to understand it's not separation from, it's separation unto God. And that's a key thing. Now we come to verse 2. Actually, I need to notice that it's the whole thrust of the first seven verses. And I don't know if I'll get seven verses tonight, but the whole thrust, I doubt I will. The whole thrust of the first seven verses is the last three words of verse one. That's the key to the whole seven verses. The key to the whole seven verses, what's the topic on hand, is the gospel of God. Now notice in verse two. In verse two he says, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now you remember when they were with uh, with the um, the road the man on the road to Emmaus and Christ had been resurrected and he comes and joins himself to them and they're walking down the road and while walking down the road the disciples do not recognize Christ to be the resurrected Savior 
they're talking with him and having a good conversation. But remember, he would have gone on and they persuaded him to come and stay the night with him. And as he broke the bread and he began to distribute the bread, the scripture said that then his eye, their eyes were open. Remember that? Well, when their eyes were open, I don't know all about when their eyes were open, but I, I, know, I recognize that there's a possibility that the way he was breaking that bread somehow began to look like the way Christ broke the bread in the upper room in John chapter 13. Maybe they thought that's him. But then I believe that there's that possibility that as he laid the bread out there and they picked the bread off his hands and now the, it unveiled the scars in his hands. You can almost hear, as Zechariah would say, where'd you get those wounds? But no, their eyes were open and they recognized this is the Christ that was crucified on the cross of Calvary. Now, what did Christ talk with his disciples while they were traveling? He talked with his disciples while they were traveling. He talked with them about himself and he took them back into the prophets. It said that he talked to them through all the prophets. And so Christ is, his goal is to be sure that mankind knows that Christ is the God of all creation. John chapter 1 and verse 1 and verse 2, and all things were created by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And then if we see then in, in, John, in Genesis chapter 3, we would find over there that it's Christ that's promised in Genesis chapter 3 to come back again and do away with sin. So we know it's Christ that's promised. We know it's Christ. And it said which he had promised before in this, by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now we come to verse 3. In verse 3, the Scripture says, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ. Concerning his son, the scripture says, Jesus Christ. Now, there was a time, and I don't see the reference as I took a close look at it, but there was a time that the Pharisees were talking of Christ, and he called God his father. And the scriptures bear out the fact that when he called God his father, they got angry with him. Because that when he called God his father, the scripture said that he made himself equal with God. Is Jesus Christ God? The answer is, He is God. Is Jesus Christ God? Most assuredly, He is God. I've got a printout right here of how much Jesus Christ is God. That has, I, I got it from another preacher, but it's right on target. Isaiah chapter 45 telling us that Jehovah is the only Savior. Isaiah chapter 43 telling us that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. I mean, Matthew telling us that. We'd find Isaiah 60 telling us that Jehovah God is light. John chapter 8 telling us Jesus Christ is light. We've got scripture telling us that Jehovah God is the only Redeemer. We know the New Testament tells us Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. So much is Jesus Christ God that Jehovah of the Old and Jesus Christ of the New are both one and the same. Jesus Christ is Jehovah. You do no injustice at all to say Jehovah Jesus. None whatsoever. But we see him saying that he is Son. Then we go in and we notice in verse 3 that it said, "...which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh." Now notice then verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. There's two according to's here. You've got an according to the flesh in verse 3. And then you've got according to the Spirit of holiness in verse 4. Now what you're seeing in these two verses combined is, is that Jesus Christ is not just man, nor is he just God. But in these two verses, as we put, put forth the gospel in a proper light, that Jesus Christ is not a divine man. He is both God and man, both in one. That's Jesus Christ. Somebody wants to ask the question, could Jesus Christ ever have sinned? 
The answer is absolutely no way. It is impossible for him to sin. Somebody said, well, he was tempted. That was the man side of Christ that was tempted in, in, uh, with uh, Satan coming to him. But the God side of Christ could never have sinned. Now, let's go a step further. How about, how about with, uh, with Jesus Christ? How about Christ in Mark chapter 4 being with that multitude? Remember how he was with that multitude? And when he got done with the multitude, he got into a ship. What did he do when he got in that ship? He went to the belly of the ship and he fell asleep. That was the man side of Christ. He was weary. He had, he had done much that day and he fell asleep. But you remember while he's asleep, a storm came and it was raging and the waves were dashing and crashing in upon that ship. And they called Jesus and they woke him and he came upon the bow of the ship and he said, peace be still. And the winds and the waves just stopped. Do you remember that? Well, what was that? That wasn't man. I, I could never step out on the bow of a ship and tell water and winds, stop it. If I could do that, I think I could make a pretty good amount of money. I think if I could tell the, the winds to stop, there'd be people looking for me to come to them when tornadoes are in the area. You all would have loved for having me around last week when it was raining and, and storming so bad. But I can't do that. I'm only a man. I get weary. But when Christ got weary, he fell asleep, the man sighed. But when he stepped out on the bow of that ship and said, peace be still, and the wind stopped, who was that? That was the Christ God. See, when Jesus Christ came to the tomb of Lazarus and overhears Mary and Martha and they're crying and weeping, and the shortest verse in the Bible says, Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Because he had lost a friend in death? No. He knew what he was going to do with Lazarus. He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He already knew all of that. That wasn't the problem. The grieving side of Christ with Mary and Martha, the man side of him grieving with them as they hurt. Is it not a wonderful thing to know that when you go through a hardship, when you go through a hard time, maybe some girl rejects you or some guy rejects you, and all of a sudden you're thinking, goodness gracious, what a hard time. Isn't it good to know there's a Savior that wants to stand right by your side and encourage you? you? Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that when you go bobbling in school, I've done that before, and you maybe you didn't quite study as much as you should have, right, Naomi? And all of a sudden you get bobbling in school a little bit, and, and then you kind of get down and out that you, you, got, you didn't get quite as much as you thought you ought to. Isn't that wonderful to know that there's a God that's with you? How about somebody losing somebody in death? How about that car accident we just recently heard about last night? about a young man, great piano player. He's, he's, he was one of the best young piano players I think I've ever heard. And how about us having to hear that he's down in Florida and a car loses a tire right beside of him and that car loses control and swears into his car and it bursts into flame killing six people, himself included. How about the family sitting around grieving and, and, and worried, and I don't know if worried's proper, but hurt. And I sit there and think to myself, is it not wonderful to know there's a Savior who by the man's side of Him can grieve with us as we hurt? Is it not wonderful? Is it not wonderful to know that when Sarah Ann's in surgery and we're sitting out there in the waiting room, and I know back surgery, everybody looks at back surgery and says, well, it's not that serious. But when your daughter's under the knife for eight and a half hours, then it gets serious to you. 
And I'm sitting there and Nadine's sitting there. Is it not a wonderful thing to know that there's a God who's man himself that can sympathize and can grieve and can encourage us from that perspective? He wept with Mary and Martha, but it was not God, it was not man that said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came forth from the four-day death. That was God. He was man when he was weeping with Mary and Martha. But he was God when he said, Lazarus, come forth. You'll let me pause right here. Because the point to be had is that if Christ can say, Lazarus, come forth, then why did he have to say, guys, roll the stone away? Could he not have gone and blown that stone away? Could he not have? Sure he could have. Then why did he tell those guys to move it? Why did he tell? Because he was gracing them with an opportunity to participate in his work. He didn't need those guys. He had all the power he needed, but he was gracing them to participate. And that's what he's doing with us. We sang the song, So Send I You. I've talked about soul winning. I've talked about needing the power of God himself. Why would he even do that? Could he not preach better than me? Sure he could. Could he not speak to some lost person better than myself? Sure he could. Could he not speak better than you? Sure he could. But he's graced us all with the privilege to go forth and to be a part in his gospel. We can tell people how to be saved. That's a privilege. You do note that he said move the stones away and most church people are busy moving stones in the way. We got a lot of people sitting there rolling stones in the path where people can't see Christ. But our true goal is to move stones out of the way so that the dead can see the one that can bring them to life. But we get too busy in churches. And don't you do it, youth. You determine in your heart, I'm going to live for God. 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 Because we've got enough that are sitting in churches that are getting in the way where the dead are looking at them rather than Christ. We want you to be so right with God according to his word that when they see you, they see Christ. That's the goal. Now, then of course, I'm talking about the man Christ and the God Christ. That's what I'm talking about. And then, of course, we got on the cross of Calvary. We've got Christ dying. Well, that was the man Christ dying on the cross of Calvary, but it was God Christ being resurrected. And then we've got Christ as he was taxed. Somebody said there's two things you can bank on, two things you can just count on that are sureties in life is that there's taxes and there'll be death. And then somebody says, and I feel like I'm being taxed to death. But the point to be had is simply this, is that Christ, when they came to him, the man's side of Christ, they taxed him. They said, you got to pay your taxes. That was the man's side of Christ. But the way he paid his taxes was God. He told Peter, he said, go cast a hook in the water. And he said, and you're going to draw a fish up. And he said, poke your finger down in that fish. And he said, and then you'll pull out a coin. He said, and we'll go pay our taxes. Well, that's all right, isn't it? Now, I want you to notice the way he fished compared to the way I fish. By the way, the way I fish never works. The way I fish, I hate fishing. I hate fishing. They don't bite my hook. I put the worm on the silly thing and I drop it over in the water. And they don't, I have had some of the worst fishing experiences that you could possibly imagine. I remember one time we went out on the Chesapeake Bay in Virginia and we're out there and we got eight guys fishing. They showed us this depth finder and there you could see them. There's all the fish going across. So we all put our hooks at the same depth and caught 150 something fish in eight hours. One of those things was mine. 
I only caught one fish in, in eight hours. And when they pulled that one fish up, they looked at him. And he was about that long. And the guy, as I was looking at him and we were, we were considering it, he said, here, let me see that thing. And he took it off my hook and he said, he's not a keeper. And he threw my fish back in. And then I go, I remember one other. I don't like fishing. And I remember one other, we were back in Virginia again, and, uh, and, a, and a friend of ours said, well, let's go fishing, and he thought he was doing us a real favor. He wasn't doing me any favors, but you hate to tell him not to. That way you can't. So we went fishing, and they said, out there in the middle of the New River, there's this outcropping of rocks. And the rocks were about as long as, say, from me to the podium, and about, about that wide. And so they took me out there in a boat, and they dropped me off on this rock. And here I am standing out there. I got one salamander on my hook, and they ro- drove off and didn't leave me any bait, and I, felt, I failed to get any. So I thought, well, I got one salamander, let's make the best of him. And my first wing, my first cast, it hung on a log. And I'm sitting here, and I cannot get that thing off my, off, uh, undone. He wouldn't come off. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, and I looked around to see where the preacher was. Preacher's over there having the time of his life. So I thought to myself, well, what do you do? I don't have a boat. I don't have anything. So I just sat down. I thought, well, we'll just try to help the preacher think I'm having fun anyway. And so I'd keep an eye on the preacher. And if he looked over that way, I'd pull a little bit on my hook and push my little button and then run it in a little bit. Bored to tears. I hate fishing. Finally, I thought, this is ridiculous. So I thought, well, I'll just pull a little bit and see if I can't get to come loose. Snap. Now I've lost my hook, I've lost my, my salamander, it's out there in the river somewhere. I don't have any more bait, don't have any more. So I thought, well, what in the world am I going to do? So I just laid down. And so I laid down there just waiting. Finally, here they came. They got the boat right over there. And I got in the boat with them. We went over to the other spot. Everybody got out. I stood up and the boat capsized and I'm in the water. I don't like fishing. Did you notice when God told Peter, he said, go put a hook in the water? He didn't even tell him to bait it. He said, go put the hook in the water. You know what the greatest bait is? It's when the Savior does the baiting. See, as soul winners, when we go out trying to tell Christ, how many times have I witnessed people trying to coerce somebody to get saved and trying to get them to come to the point that they think they ought to get saved. And and it's almost as if mankind's trying to bait the hook. But the greatest bait is when God baits that hook and when we get there and we knock on that door and they're already under some form of conviction and they sense that they need to be saved. You know, I got to thinking about it one time. I mean, imagine it. God, Christ as God and man. Man had to be taxed being Christ. The man side of him had to be taxed. But it's the God side that knew when that sailor lost some money overboard and that money begins trickling down in the river. It's the God side of Christ that sent a fish by and caught that, that money. It's the God side of Christ that said, come over to Peter's hook and get on that hook. and let." I see, that's God. The man got taxed in, in, in Christ, but God paid the taxes in Christ in, in knowing the movement of man and money and nature and bringing it right to the right spot. What do you think, Brother Steve, would have happened if Peter hadn't even put a hook out there on the water? I say that fish came to the spot that his master being Christ said, get that and bring it to us. I can almost see that fish climbing up that road, that line and walking down and giving that money to Peter. Somebody says that's crazy. Well, I say sometimes nature is more obedient than mankind. Shame on us. 
So I'm talking about Christ as man and God. On the cross of Calvary, when Jesus Christ died, he died as man with sins of the world upon himself, but he was resurrected as God himself. See, Jesus Christ took our sins so that you and I would not have to bear those sins. Is that not wonderful tonight? Is it not a wonderful thing to know that my sins, which can become heavy, to know that my sins, which can become grievous, to know that my sins, which have as if they're a chain attached about my neck, are going to drag me to a devil's hell? But is it not a wonderful thing this evening to know that Jesus Christ, the God-man, took those sins upon himself and buried those sins in hell itself and I don't have to go there anymore. He has paid my price. Is that not a wonderful thing? That's what we're talking about right here in the gospel when he says the gospel, he's separated the gospel of God in verse 1. He's talking about it. He's telling us that Jesus Christ is our only hope. Somebody told me one time, it was up in Bismarck, North Dakota, they said, well, you know, preacher, he said, I believe everything you've said. I said, is there anything else in your salvation? He said, well, yeah, my, my confirmation into my church. I said, okay. I said, you got Jesus Christ and you got confirmation. I said, is there anything else in your salvation? He said, yes, sir. He said, my baptism as an infant. I said, okay, we got your baptism. We've got, we've got your confirmation and we've got Jesus Christ. Anything else? He said, no, that's it. I said, do you have percentages? He said, I do. He said, I would say that roughly 98% of my salvation is Jesus Christ. 1% is in my baptism and 1% is in my confirmation into the church. And so I asked the question this evening, is that man saved? And I'll give the answer, he's not. You said, but he's close. And I say, we're not playing horseshoes tonight. We're talking about the soul of a man. And when God said in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. He is telling us that if your salvation is not 100% in Jesus Christ and Him alone, you are not saved. You said, but that man's only got 2% of his salvation. He's banking in something else. But I ask the question, what's he banking it in? He's banking it in himself. That's when the scripture says, not of works, lest any man should boast. There won't be 2% of boasting in heaven. That's why salvation from Adam to the very last person, it's all Christ. There's not a dispensation of something else because God has no dispensation of boasting. We are going to boast in Christ, but not in self. Salvation's got to be all Christ. It's all in what Christ did. It's all in that he took our sins. It's all in that he shed his blood, that he could wash away our sins, that he could purchase us to be his very own. It's all in that the blood of Christ was then put upon the Holy of Holies. It's all in that Jesus Christ buried our sins and was resurrected again. Oh, what a salvation we have tonight. But the question is, is do you have that salvation? That's the question.